What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Platka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell's going on this week? Well, we're talking about liberal patriotism and liberal nationalism, Danny. So we've got the editors of a great new substack called The Liberal Patriot joining us. These guys are trying to promote a different vision of liberalism in an age when everybody is saying, you know, America is evil and we're systemically racist and all the rest of it. It's kind of refreshing to see a group of liberals come out and say, no, we're patriots and we're proud of it. And America's what's good in the world. And we just have different visions of how we can make America great. Right. And I'm um, to, to, to coin a phrase. <laughs> I have a ton of respect for these guys because they have the kind of discussion about politics and about issues that I think is too often missing. You and I try to fill part of that gap. You and I are both conservatives. The guys from the Liberal Patriot are all liberals, big L liberals. They're all Democrats, and some of them have worked in party politics. But the thing that I really appreciate about all of these folks, two of whom you and I are going to host in just a couple of minutes on the podcast, is that they're having a lot of the hard conversations that you and I talk about on the right. Is there a Republican Party beyond Donald Trump? And they're asking, is this extremist cultural leftism going to dominate the Democratic Party forever? That's a real danger. We should talk about it. Gee, maybe what people are saying on Fox News isn't all insane. And the thing that I really like the most, because it is absolutely the ethic that I think we need to have more of, not less of in this town, is, you know what? No matter what, I want to listen to people who disagree with me because I think they have something to say. There's no rudeness. There's no contempt. There are no put downs. It's just thoughtful disagreement. This is the problem that exists on, on, on all sides, but it particularly exists on the left in a different way than it does on the right. Peter Jewell, one of the guys who writes for this Substack, had a really interesting article where he talked about how declining religiosity of Democrats has left a hole which they have filled with politics, right? And so all of these issues are becoming things of religious fervor, and the people who disagree are heretics who need to be burned at the stake as opposed to people who have different points of view and different agreements. I don't think we have that so much on the right as they have on the left. I think we're doing a really good job of catch up on the right, actually. I agree with you. I think that this problem of sort of doctrinal religiosity and no tolerance for micro-deviationism or, you know, micro-splitism, as it's called in North Korea, it has been a challenge for them. But I will say... If Liz Cheney, yes, we can disagree about her tactics and everything else, but if Liz Cheney doesn't belong in the Republican leadership because she questioned whether the elections were legitimate, if the governor, Brian Kemp of Georgia, deserves to be censured by his own party, which he just was, we are quickly catching up to that sort of corrosive, stupid intolerance that you are talking about on the left, and it will be to our peril. If we do, because all this does is make us a weaker country. 
I agree. Look, we need to have people on the left and right who don't have contempt for each other and who understand that we are all Americans who disagree about how to make this country better. And that we have values that we hold dear and want to promote and that, you know, we can disagree about how to do it. And we do. But they have a different problem again, I think, on the left, which is that there is an element of the far left in this country, which is of rising prominence. It has control of the levers of power in the Democratic Party on Capitol Hill. It has control of a president who can't. 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 <laughs> just can't. Let's just stop there, right? Look, as a conservative, I think, obviously, think that you're right that this is a big challenge. You know, in my much beloved Washington Post piece in which I discussed considering voting for Donald Trump, I said I thought that elites ran the Democratic Party and that their distance from reality and from their own base was a danger to us all. I will say, again, I don't think the Republican Party is like that as much. But we're doing our darndest. And we do have the rottenest, shittiest, you know, little, yes, it's a fringe, but, you know, anti-Semitic, racist, nasty, proud boy fringe that I got to say makes me ashamed. Well, true. But that is a fringe and it's not in control of the party. I mean, we just saw that fringe hold up funding for the Iron Dome on Capitol Hill. That doesn't happen. Well, we saw our fringe invade our own dome on January 6th. The difference between the far left and the right is that What the left is saying is that what's the source of our ability to come together? We're all Americans. We all love this country. We all think this country is a force for good in the world. We just got to disagree about how to exercise that power. The far left doesn't agree with that fundamental premise. The far left thinks that America is evil, that we were founded on slavery, that we are systemically racist, that we are morally corrupt. I think those people get a lot more play in the media than necessarily our side does. And again, this isn't a game about who can suck more. Let's go positive. What these guys are trying to do is restore a fundamental base of discussion where the left and right can talk to each other again because we share the fundamental idea that our country is a force for good in the world and that we can have a discussion across ideological lines and party lines about how to exercise. But they are men of the left. They do believe things that you you and I fundamentally disagree with. But they believe there's a more effective way to do it than the way that we're looking at right now. And I think that's true in a lot of instances. And we're talking about them. So let's go to them. The Liberal Patriot was founded by four guys, Rui Teixeira, Peter Jewell, John Halpin, and Brian Katulis. Rui and Brian both join us today, but they all do fantastic work. And we commend their Substack to you. So go out and sign up for it right now. Here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Great to be with you. So tell us, what is the Liberal Patriot? It's a free substack that we started at the beginning of 2021 because everybody was doing a substack. (laughs) (laughs) But we would often have conversations about issues related to U.S. politics and foreign policy. And in our day jobs, we try to publish pieces in certain publications. We noticed that the editorial line in some liberal publications had gone in directions that didn't seem close to liberalism as we understood it, meaning inclusive, pluralistic ideas. And mm-hmm. you look at some of the you know places that we've all published in the past, and it's like, oh, there's a space here, not only for a sort of balanced political analysis on domestic politics, but then the thing also I'm interested in, which is sort of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. engagement from the center. So let me ask you a question, and That's Rui, what Brian. What supposed to do. Thank you, Mark. Podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your guidance. Yeah. I'll help you with your substack too. <laughs> You're supposed to write words you, you and put them out so people Take can read your them. substack and <laughs> shove it. All right. Gentlemen, 
and I use that term, not including Mark here. So what is a liberal patriot? Well, a liberal patriot, in our view, is someone who adheres to what we take to be the historical center of gravity of the left and of liberalism in this country, which is being for you know an expansive welfare state, being for universalistic programs that lift up everybody, opposing discrimination on the grounds of race and gender, but not seeking to impose your ideology about that on anyone else, support for free speech and open debate, and an active effort to include as many people as possible in your political coalition. You're trying to make as many friends as you can, not to read people out of your coalition on the grounds they don't adhere to some or other cultural ideological litmus test. To us, the true left liberalism in this country that helped build the American welfare state and helped build a political coalition did all kinds of great things in terms of making this country a better place, a fairer place, a less racist place, and so on and so forth. That's the kind of left liberalism that we see almost disappearing. And why do we call it patriot? Because we believe in patriotism. We're gobsmacked at this point that in many venues on the left of this country today, it's like out of fashion to be patriotic. It's like weird if you're patriotic. I mean, there was a fascinating study that was done by hidden tribes that showed there is about 10% slice of the population who they call the progressive activists. And everybody else, every other slice of the electorate was you know, 60, 70, 80% said they were proud to be an American. This slice of people who are very heavily represented in our media and in the progressive infrastructure you know, like 30% said they were patriotic. So we believe that there's a mission to make this country better. America is, for all its flaws, a pretty good country. And it shouldn't be that controversial to say it. I'd add to it as the international component of it, because what Rui just described is the domestic picture. And to me, quite often, the problem on the center left is that the link between the international and the domestic is not recognized. And I think as a liberal nationalist, if you will, an inclusive nationalist, you can be an internationalist as well. And you need to be to actually stay engaged with the world. You guys had a phrase on one of your podcasts earlier, liberal isolationism. Mm -hmm. I actually disagree with that as intellectual concept. I understand the label. But I don't think you can be liberal in the sense that I understand it and then just say, OK, we're going to build walls and we're not going to ignore things in Syria and in Afghanistan. And I see that quite a lot on the left. I understand you know, why someone would term that, but I think it's a contradiction in terms. So as a conservative listening to what you say, I'm rooting for you because I want to have a partner to reach across to the aisle to. And so I think it's great that you're pushing this, but it seems like you're out of vogue within the modern Democratic Party. So There's like, a reason they're with us, Mark. <laughs> you mean AOC wasn't available? <laughs> But I mean, it seems like the liberalism today, I guess it's not liberal, it's illiberal, but liberalism today, the left, nationalism is anathema. We're a systemically racist country founded on slavery. Our whole country and our whole founding is called into question. We need to tear down statues of everybody, not just the Confederates, but of Jefferson. And, right, and like, what Brian has written, and I think you and I both agree themselves. with, what we fail to understand is that people who are who are, in a sense, anti-American, also believe that everything America does overseas is definitionally wrong, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so it's yeah. not even that our goals are just in Afghanistan or Syria or Libya or wherever it is. It is that by dint of it being the United States, it's wrong. Yeah, and you had that dynamic, I mean, sorry to say, on the right as well, even President Trump saying things that said, well, America did a lot of bad things in the world. And yep. there's, there's, that, there's that wraparound, I think, when it comes to foreign policy, in a sense. I believe there's a lot of people out there who are projecting themselves as sort of the new vanguard on both politics and 
foreign policy. But I think that they're actually a little out of step with where most Americans are. You said we're, we're out of vote. But if you look at the results of the 2018 midterm elections, the 2019-2020 primary election, and Rui can talk about this, is that I do think there's a center inside the party that's still quite strong and numerically strong. That's what wins votes. This is sort of Rui and John Halpin's central points when they write about domestic politics. But quite often, our own side misreads those polls. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of inclusive nationalism, because, again, we've been told the right wing nationalism is a threat to America. You know, that nationalism itself is dangerous, one, because our flawed founding and, you know, to be proud to be American is just wrong. And two, because it becomes jingoistic, right? It becomes we're better than everybody else and it has all problems with that. But our nationalism has always been different. European nationalism has always been blood and soil nationalism because that's what they have, right? Our nationalism has been built around an idea which is very different, the idea of liberty, which is open to anybody. I think one of the problems with the right-wing nationalism has been that they've been trying to foist this European blood and soil type of nationalism on America, right. when our nationalism has always been based on the idea that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that anybody can be part of it. It's an inclusive as opposed to exclusive nationalism. Is that something yeah, that can sell in this day and age on the left? Well, it depends on what you mean by the left. I mean, I think if you... Think of the left as being the kind of people who control the commanding heights of cultural production in this country, you know, <laughs> in liberalish media, nonprofits, advocacy groups, foundations, congressional representatives, some very blue areas. Yeah, we're not going to talk those people into it at this point because they're, in a sense, insulated from the median voter. They're insulated from the views of most Americans. But I think if you're talking about the broad group of people actually vote for the center left in this country, actually existing Democrats and independents who vote Democrats or who would consider voting Democratic or even Republicans, I mean, it's not anathema that, in fact, we are a nation that needs to, for example, have borders, have common projects together, has done much good as well as things that are bad, that we're a reformable to the extent we have problems, they are reformable. I mean, I don't think this is a hard sell with the median Democrat even. I think it's a harder sell with a lot of the people who are basically responsible for what I call liberal college graduate hegemony <laughs> among certain wide sectors of, totally uh, of the society. To totally true. Having kids in school and teaching, I can tell you that is totally true. So you wrote, in essence, what you just said, which is that democratic socialists and left-wing multiculturalists alike vastly exaggerated their strength and their appeal among democratic voters. And then you go through in this piece on the, the liberal patriot, the cultural left puts a ceiling on democratic support, which is what you sort of described. But I love the way you ended it, and I wish you would explain it just a little bit numerically as well. You said the Democrats' dilemma is this. They cannot have both cultural leftism and political dominance. Eventually, they will have to choose. And you dig into the numbers that are really, first of all, heartening for those of us who worried about the Republican Party and where it was headed, but also, I think, kind of turning on its head this standard argument, which is that demographics is destiny for the Democratic Party. Right. Well, I've obviously, yes, I've written quite a bit about this. Let's look at the elements of the Democratic Coalition. Prior to a few decades ago, it had a very important role for white non-college voters, white working class voters. Much of that support has dissipated. Biden made small gains among that demographic in the 2020 election, but they were small gains. The Republicans still have a, 
a vast advantage. And there's still 44% of voters in the nation. They're much more than that in a lot of key swing states. So Democrats, in a sense, as these demographic changes were taking place, they perhaps misinterpreted the fact that, for example, you had more Hispanics, you had more Asians, you had more professionals. You had several things happening in the country that seemed to augur well for the potential for a democratic coalition. But what they left out was the fundamental problem that if this vast demographic starts moving against you, then that can easily cancel out all the potential gains you might get from these other demographic changes. And a further problem the Democrats now have in terms of their coalition is what I think is a class problem. You know, we could see the class problem in the split between white college graduates and white non-college voters. But I think we're also starting to see it among Hispanic and black working class voters. I think that a lot of this cultural leftism is simply anathema to a lot of these voters. I mean, why have they been for Democrats in the past? Because they see Democrats as being on their side. They see Democrats as providing sort of services that they need, spending that they consider useful. But what they don't consider useful, for example, is defunding the police. I mean, Hispanics who are citizens who vote, for example, particularly in a state like Texas, they don't see like open borders as like a great idea. This is not how you're going to get them and keep them on your side. They're very sensitive to economics, to upward mobility, to their jobs, their communities, to education, and to public safety. And if Democrats are perceived as dropping the ball on what these working class constituencies they want, even if they're embedded within demographics that are historically favorable to the Democrats, like the black voter population, or Hispanic voter population, they will lose votes. And that's what I mean by putting a ceiling on it. You're putting a ceiling on your potential support if you're going to alienate people with these kinds of sets of culturally leftist viewpoints and issues and rhetoric that you don't need to alienate. You could actually keep a lot of those voters on your side if you focused on the kinds of programs and issues they really do care about and that they're not scared of. So, so I think that's, that's really what it's about. And I think that people on the left of the Democratic Party, they vastly overestimate how popular these kind of culturally leftist positions are. And they vastly overestimate their own power. And they vastly underestimate the power of sort of ordinary people even in the demographics that they believe are their friends. Do they also overestimate or at least project their own obsession with race onto the general population? In the sense, I mean, you point out that since 2012, running against Trump twice, Democrats have lost 18 points off of their margin among non-white working class voters. They tried to portray Donald Trump as a racist, an anti-Hispanic racist, and he made gains with Hispanic mm -hmm. voters. Is it possible that just their whole model is wrong, that the left, which is focused so much on race, sees everything through the prism of race, but these people are actually seeing things through the prism of their lives, their work, their opportunity. Hispanic jobs are going to China just as much as white working class jobs are going to China. And, mm -hmm. you know, when they got a president who's saying, I want to bring those jobs back, we need to bring our supply chains back to America, we need to start manufacturing here again, that appeals across race and that they actually prioritize that more than some of the racial issues that the far left brings up. Right. I mean, I think that if you look at the views on race that are endemic among liberal, white, and non-white college graduates, and that you see a lot of in the papers, and then it's certainly were turbocharged around the Black Lives Matter protest after the killing of George Floyd, that is not the view of the median, even black or Hispanic voter. They don't see things in the same way as these activists do. They're not reading from the same playbook. They care about many other things besides, you know, they're obviously opposed to police brutality. But that doesn't mean they're totally on board with the entire political program that is associated with Black Lives Matter and activists in that sphere. They have a different point of view. And, 
you know, as David Shore has pointed out many times, if you look at the actual views of these black working class voters or Hispanic working class voters, people who are not in sort of this college educated cultural bubble, they're just not interested in a lot of this stuff. Their concerns are different. When you start talking about defund the police, you lose a lot of these voters. You form a barrier between your party and those voters because they're not on board with this concept that America is so systemically racist and the police are so fundamentally corrupt, they should be abolished or drastically downsized. I mean, look at what Eric Adams did in New York City. Eric right. Adams ran against all that stuff. And he understood public safety is hugely important to average citizens of that city, including especially black and Hispanic working class people who bear the brunt of crime, as has famously been established by a lot of public opinion data. White college graduates are now significantly to the left of blacks and Hispanics. It's that crazy. should tell you something. So one of the articles that a lot of people are talking about that I think is absolutely fascinating, and of course, Mark can't ask you about this because he is star of stage and screen at Fox News. <laughs> but of course, Fox News, you know, is the Antichrist, is the bugaboo to the left. And you wrote a piece called, Rui, wrote a piece called The Fox News Fallacy. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. The Fox News fallacy was probably the most popular post, definitely was, that we ever did in the Liberal Patriot. And I just tried to put forward a very simple idea about how people on the left tend to erroneously reply to certain issues that are controversial. The basic idea is, for example, look at an issue like crime. If people are talking about crime, and crime is a real problem, crime is going up, and Fox News is talking about it on their shows and how the Democrats are off the reservation on this stuff, and this is like a real problem real people care about, the response by many on the left is to say that because this is being talked about on Fox News, it must not be a real problem because, you know, they are, as you said, the Antichrist. They're simply trying to mobilize this for partisan purposes, which may indeed be true. But that doesn't mean that because they say it, it's wrong, right? Logically, <laughs> Yeah, Fox Mark. News could be saying there's a crime problem <laughs> and violent crime is going up and like people are up in arms about it. And that could be or completely the border. correct. The border's the an border's absolute disaster. another great example. People on the Democratic side, when they hear conservatives talking about a problem at the border, the surge at the border, originally the reply on the Democratic side was more or less, well, it was a seasonal thing. It'll kind of go away. But it was very clear from the get-go, this was not going to go away. The surge was probably going to continue. And this is the kind of thing that is a very serious policy problem and very unpopular with the median American voter. They want borders that are secure, not open. People who are really need asylum should have a chance to apply for it. But I mean, there's a sense the system is broken. And Fox News talks about that. So the reaction is, well, if Fox News is talking about it, the immigration system is broken, there's a surge of border, it's a real problem, then our role is to deny that it's a problem. But that doesn't make any sense. But it's empirically just a problem. Just because they're talking about it doesn't mean it's wrong. And therefore, Democrats, if they wish to be responsive to the political mood, to the actual policy problems that currently obtain, they have to have something more to say than that. You know, it's not giving up to say this is actually a problem. You don't have to name check Fox News if you don't. But the correct way to deal with something is not to say, well, this is just a Fox News talking point, which is something I get frequently. People have to grow up and realize that these are real problems. And just because Fox News is mentioning X doesn't mean X is wrong or X is not a problem. It's a very simple proposition in logic in the real world. 
Fox News is covering things that the left is ignoring. And if they don't take that seriously, like one of the things, I, one of the big problems we have in our politics today is that everybody's media consumption is becoming more and more stovepiped, right? So one of the things I do and I teach my kids to do when we were still commuting before the pandemic, I always listen to NPR on mm -hmm. the way in because I consciously want to listen to a liberal news source yeah. so that I know what is the left talking about? What are people who are left of center who are leaning that way? What are they talking about? What are their concerns? Are they wrong? I always try to absorb news from left wing sites. And it seems like that doesn't happen on the left in the same way. Right. No, this is this is a big problem with our politics in general. People should seek to get information from a variety of different sources with diverse perspectives, if they may use a word that gets employed perhaps <laughs> over much these days. Everything that the center of gravity says on your side, particularly the center of gravity of the media you typically consume, is not automatically going to be true. So if you really want to find out what's going on and you really want to understand what's happening politically and in terms of the economy and what have you, you need a diverse set of sources. And I pay attention to stuff that's covered on Fox News or conservative sources in general. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if there's a sort of group think going on on your side about a particular issue like crime or immigration or critical race theory or what have you, it behooves you to seek out. If you don't want to listen to Fox News, fine. Fox News isn't the greatest by any stretch of the imagination. I do think they have a partisan agenda. But there are other conservative voices quite worth listening to. And logically, if your side is not covering X and the other side is covering X or some people are, then you should read. You should, you should seek truth. I mean, this is like becoming unpopular now, this idea. We should actually seek truth instead of so seeking truth. You can't seek truth. You have to have my truth. So, Your truth, right? So, uh, you, exactly. Lived experience. You should read. I would add two more things to it is you should actually absorb it. And really think through what it means. And third, you should think about how you project, meaning how you talk about these issues. And I think this is the problem many on the left have with the Fox News dynamic. I try to watch it because it's interesting, but then it gets to be so predictable and then also coarse and sort of reductionist. It doesn't offer, I'm, I, don't, I haven't seen your segments, Mark, no. but do you understand what I'm saying? How we talk about these things as a nation. So sometimes people won't turn each other off because of the difference on substance on a policy question. What's off-putting is actually the deeply personal, how people talk about things, how they frame sort of a member of my tribe versus your tribe. And I've seen this. I lived in the Middle East forever, for years, right? This sectarianism is actually quite dangerous where people become blind to actually listening That's to you actually dynamic. can't be a good liberal and an effective liberal if you're not listening to conservatives just as you can't be a good conservative if you're not listening to liberals because one you could find out you're wrong about something right like that you could actually learn facts that make you reassess your position but two even if you end up holding the position you held before you need to understand how the other side is arguing and what their points are so that you can actually engage them and rebut them effectively Otherwise, everybody's all just tearing down straw men. Right. But why right? I say absorb and then also speak in a different way is that I often feel like those last two items don't happen amongst our political leadership and then in including our intellectual class. We actually just talk past each other. And then we have negative synergy. The sum is less than the individual parts. And there's a lot of smart people in this town. And you wonder, and when I try to explain to people in other countries, why are we so dysfunctional? Part of it is it's not because of lack of capacity. We're a great nation. Our economy's booming. We're doing great things. But we actually don't listen carefully and then adjust how we talk about things. We just go back to the way 
of how we thought about things. So even if you step out of the stovepipe, thank you for having us on this conservative podcast. We're trying to do this here. But you need more from the left and everybody doing this because it's to me, it becomes less of an interesting conversation. You can almost pre-program it with an algorithm, the nature of the political debates that we have. I mean, it's less interesting. And in the end, it's not effective. You mentioned being an effective liberal, an effective conservative. What we're all about is seeking to generate enough support to get the ideas we believe in implemented in practice. And you cannot be an effective liberal if you're going off, you know, on these tangents that are of no concern to most people and that are even divorced from the facts. One thing that can help you stay in touch with the facts and stay in touch with, you know, normie voters is don't just listen to your side, listen to the other side. Seek to understand as widely as you can the facts and the situation at hand and what the reactions are in different parts of the political spectrum. That's how you can maximize your effectiveness. And in the end, it has to all be about effectiveness. Otherwise, why are you doing this? The corollary to the Fox News fallacy is that MSNBC is actually reflecting reality. Because if you're everything that's on Fox News is wrong and and because it's on Fox News and oh, I'm just listening to MSNBC, you start thinking that that's the way the rest of the country thinks and it's not. Right. Exactly. Seek truth from facts. A fine diktat. So, Brian, you've written about the things that are on the front page of the newspaper, like Afghanistan and the withdrawal, along with your colleague Peter Zuhl, yeah. and done some very thoughtful work, I think. All I want to do is sort of jump up and down and scream when I write about it, so I'm, I'm grateful when somebody is thoughtful. But just as a sort of a structural matter, I think you describe something really interesting, and that is this concept of the gated community mindset yeah. in foreign policy. Can you just explain a little bit about that and maybe sort of draw it back also to Obama because you write that that's where it began. Sure. It it began, I think, in reaction to mistakes that I think were made in the Bush administration and then later on under Obama, uh, some of the earlier first-term mistakes that he made. And it's trying to introduce a new label, right? We've got like the foreign policy blob these days. People like to say the blob. I have my alternative phrase, which is the foreign policy meh, meaning (laughs) a lot of the critics of the blob, if you look carefully at what they propose beyond criticisms. And I think the criticisms are fair because there's been a lot of failure in U.S. foreign policy over the last 20 years. We have not succeeded across several administrations in achieving what we want. But you look at a lot of the criticisms lobbed at the so-called blob, and it's sort of meh. It doesn't tell you where to go. It identifies some problems, but then it often doesn't tell you anything beyond let's retreat behind borders. And the endless war. Again, that's sort of a tonic that people use and endless wars or forever wars to say that they're doing something noble in part. And it doesn't really think through what the likely consequences of the actions were taken there. So this gated community mindset ideas, my attempt at a new phrase, which is essentially saying, look, a lot of people are just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, okay, we just need to build walls. We need to deport illegal immigrants. This is a thing that's on the left and, and the right as well. What happens on the other side of that wall? We might drone it every once in a while, but we really don't have agency. We don't have a role in trying to shape it. I know this is oversimplified because the response would be, well, in a world of climate change and all of this engagement with the EU on trade and technology issues, this is a new type of engagement. We're trying to pivot to the wider game or the longer game, they've often said, the competition with China and other things. The problem is, is that if you ignore these short-term challenges, as we saw under the Obama administration, Syria, Iraq... ISIS bubbles up. This is what I worry a little bit about Afghanistan. And again, I'm not a a neocon liberal who says we should keep boots on the ground forever, right? But we do need to think through the consequences and the lessons learned from, say, how we got out of Iraq. 
And it's alarming to me how blind I think a lot of people were of that and just the short-term consequences. And the best way I could articulate it is it's just this gated community concept. It goes back to the earliest of human civilization. We just take care of our own and we could care less about the rest of the world, especially on those hardest of cases, Afghanistan, Syria, those places that we should be pained by. But there's not as much of that moral or strategic debate about these cases. This is a question that I've actually not succeeded in answering since I started working on Afghanistan in the early 1990s. And that is, if you say you care about human rights, and I think all of us care about human rights, if you say you care about women's rights, you know, if you care about religious freedom, political rights, you know, those sorts of things, those neocon things in some cases. But in fact, they're actually, you know, the small L liberal things that we all care about, right? If you care about those... How do you do that from your gated community? How can you hold yourself up if you are one of these folks who Rui has just been talking about, who is a tribune of, you know, righteous feminism or whatever it is, and not care about what's happening in Afghanistan? Well, there's just a lot of cognitive dissonance. Right. People just throw up blinders and then they come up with half measures of, oh, well, we'll we'll just appoint an envoy or a special (laughs) rep to monitor the situation of women in Afghanistan, go talk to women in Afghanistan and see how they feel about that proposal and what good that will do for them. It's sort of the same sort of thing that I heard quite a lot when so-called progressives, and I I use this phrase so-called quite a lot because I think in progressive foreign policy, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of what people call progressive foreign policy is actually backward looking. It's looking at the 2005 to 2015 period. They're fighting battles from like 10 or 15 years ago. They literally, in some of the articles, talk about neocons or the Bush-Cheney war on terror, or they're trying to advocate for a new Iran agreement. But it doesn't actually deal with the challenges today. And the challenges we face today are really, on the human rights front, gut-wrenching when it comes to Afghanistan, in part as a consequence of the decisions the United States made. And yes, we can't fix all of these places, but we have to be a little bit more creative because if you don't think through the human consequences, and that's one thing I've written about, is that there really has been a degradation and devaluing from the left and the right, to be clear, of the value of human life in U.S. foreign policy. And this is not a new thing under Biden or Trump before him. It was a steady, slow, ah, what can we do about it? And we actually need to think more beyond, okay, a Twitter campaign for those women that were kidnapped by Boko Haram, you know, a few years ago, or completely downgrading it under the Trump administration, in my view. Those things, except for a few people like Mike Pompeo elevating religious freedom, human rights were really downgraded in our relationships. I think the pendulum of the politics here in the country has infected foreign policy as well. If you come in, you got to do everything that almost everything the except the opposite, except for the agreement that was sacrosanct with the Taliban. We, we got to <laughs> right. abide the by one that. thing we should have gotten rid of. Right. But thing that we should have gotten, so, exactly. so what is, you know, it seems to me like I'm, I'm dating myself now, but that you're trying to bring back sort of a Scoop Jackson tradition in the Democratic Party that was a bipartisan American leadership internationalism. But tell us, what is a liberal patriotic, liberal nationalist foreign policy? I think it would start first with a strong sense that America is going to, yes, have a strong defense of its own system. Here at home, you need a strong defense, but that doesn't necessarily mean just simply military spending. It means having a much stronger projection of what our role is to compete in the world. And I think they're kind of getting this right if you pay attention a little bit to, say, one of the stars, I think, of the Biden foreign policy team is Catherine Tai, USTR. Earlier this week, she made an announcement about China and I think picking up some of the playbook that was developed a bit under Trump, but 
bringing a bit more coherence to it. I think a liberal patriot foreign policy would be, look, how can we invest here more at home? And I link a lot of the proposals in front of Congress right now, some of which I think should be and will be discarded, but some of which is investing in our ability to compete, infrastructure, and a robust public investment. And I think that's what would distinguish me from you, Mark, as a conservative, where I think there is a role for government here and that we need to actually make those investments because China's got a game plan, right? When we went out around America two years ago and listened to where Americans were at on foreign policy, most people could care less about the intricacies of what we talk about, Yemen and other things. They care about China and they have a sense that China has a game plan and we don't. And, you know, Trump had a go on offense and knock China off guard, but there wasn't enough to actually invest here at home. And I think a key part of that is a strong defense, not only security wise and militarily, but economically. And I think that's the one thing that I think Biden has some potential still to get right. But Biden just came out and went to Capitol Hill and urged his party not to pass his 1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure deal. So what's going on there? Well, uh, if, if, you, if you find out, let me know. Yeah, we're all trying to puzzle that one out there as uh, I think it was Politico playbook or something remarked or quoting somebody. It's the strangest thing this politician has ever seen, a president coming up to the Hill to whip against their own bill. And that's that's pretty bizarre. You know, one can only conclude that he decided that it was not, in fact, sort of in his interest to oppose the left at this point. He took the progressive caucuses threat seriously that they would tank the infrastructure bill if push came to shove and he decided not to really whip it to try to call their bluff and concluded perhaps that while it makes him look ridiculous to do this, you know, a few more weeks and he can get both bills passed. Now, the whole thing is kind of a bizarre uh, set of events because we all know that the reconciliation bill when it is finally formed and voted on, will be nowhere close to $3.5 trillion. It'll be, you know, Biden's now floating 2.1, Manchin says 1.5. We knew this for a long time. What was the point of not just voting for the infrastructure bill, taking the win, and then sitting down and actually- Negotiating. Negotiating, carving out a bill that was satisfactory to all sides that probably would be in the $1.5 to $2 trillion range and would not include all the programs that the left wants to fund, but would include some of them. This would have been the sensible course instead of this endless brinksmanship that is, you know, now we have this bizarre situation where, as, as mentioned, the president comes up to the Hill and says, well, don't vote for my bill. We need to, you know, sort of hang out a little bit more and, and chat a bit more and so on. And they sent sort of subterranean signals to various people on the left and <laughs> Congress about how, well, you know, it's, you know, we're not actually that upset if you threaten to tank the bill because we kind of think we all need to, you know, somehow, you know, this is the president really wants the, the biggest bill possible and blah, blah, blah. I mean, maybe they're you know, they're playing chess and I'm just thinking in terms of checkers or something. Maybe there is a master plan here that I really don't understand, but it just on the face of it looks bad. It looks disorganized. It looks shambolic. And it does raise the unfortunate possibility at the end they'll get nothing. I mean, it could happen. The whole thing could implode. Why would Inshallah. you put that but, risk? But I, I hope not. And beyond the legislative tactics on these pieces of legislation, two points that have international implication. One is if you look at what Biden and Kerry and his team want to do on climate, I know you guys don't believe in climate change over here at AEI. We do uh, believe but, in climate change but, but, but it's here a, it's at AEI. We just it's, don't want it's to go back part to of the agenda. Century. It's a key part of the <laughs> It's a key part of the domestic and foreign policy agenda. And if, century, if this legislative <laughs> package, some element of it, these investments in our own economy to shift the economy aren't made in October, 
it'll leave the negotiators in November quite empty-handed. It's reminded me of sort of Wilson and the League of Nations. The second implication, and more broadly, what pains me, because this is largely a fight within the Democratic Party, but the bigger picture, and this is not a new episode, is Republicans and Democrats not getting along on big ticket items, whether it's even just keeping the government open. When I go around the world, and you've heard this as well, our adversaries, our enemies, our allies look at us and say, WTF, Right. If you guys can't actually get W-T-H. your... WTH. <laughs> yeah, WTH. <laughs> but this is the dysfunction that has infected our foreign policy, which is not a new thing, right? I, I would argue it's it's been around for at least 20 years. The hyper-partisanship is something that is exploited by our adversaries and uh, you know people who are competing with us, China. They laugh at this. And it's a problem on both the left and the right. And the, the problem I have, the concern I have is that those who are, especially in the foreign policy realm, they're increasingly like combatants in this internal fight and they forget this bigger picture that, oh, these disagreements, and I disagreed with you guys on the Iraq war, on the Iran JCPOA, but we're still, again, Americans, we're nationalists, liberal patriots, if you will, from our side. And we forget that in our debates over key pieces, including whether we invest in America or not to compete with the Chinas of the world. I mean, no, I think that's right. Look, when Mark and I both worked on the Hill, I used to work with my Democratic colleagues all the time. And when we disagreed, you had to remember, you know, this is business. This is our business. Politics is our business. We're going to disagree. But it doesn't need to infect everything else. It doesn't need to infect your dialogue. It doesn't need to infect your bona fides. It doesn't need to infect your respect for people with whom you disagree. And I think that's our former president, Arthur Brooks, always talks about that when you get to a point between he uses it between couples, but of course, it applies to everything, where one side has contempt for the other, it becomes very difficult to extricate No, and that's why holding up things like these Senate noms for national security positions. And I I understand- Right, I get what Ted Cruz is about. I I know what they're doing, but it actually, in the longer run, it doesn't help the United States writ large. And I think people are trying to make a point on a particular issue. And I understand that tactic, but then it doesn't add up to make us stronger in the world. It's a big challenge and a bigger sort of challenge overall. Well, this isn't a quick question. This is a whole other, you know, two hours, but then more. But exit question for me. Obviously, this is the kind of conversation we love to have. You know, this is also the kind of discussion that's you know, right. It, we should be having more of between people who disagree about some of the issues, but agree about a lot of the fundamentals. What's it going to take? Mark and I talk all the time about the Republican Party and the question of the domination of Trump and and whether the Republican Party exists in the absence of Donald Trump and, you know, all of those challenges on the right. Okay, but you guys are not on the right. Is there a path forward for the viewpoints that you espouse in the Democratic Party? Not the guys on the ground, the big bosses. Well, I think so. And I think for a very simple reason. Winning. These situations play out in the real world. These political points of view, these faction fights, these arguments about how the Democratic Party should present itself, eventually it comes down to elections. It comes down to who wins and who loses. The Democrats are now in a position, partly because of a lot of the factors we've talked about, partly just because it's going to be a difficult election, 2022, for historical reasons, they'll probably lose control of the House in 2022 lose control of Congress. That will provoke some thinking about why couldn't we have done a little bit better, given all the great stuff we've done for the masses of honest workers and peasants in America. I think that the kind of point of view we are putting forward that seeks to get the Democrats 
and the center left in general to focus on what's truly popular about their positions, the things that most people actually believe would help them, and in fact, doing things that would help them, is the correct way to go about building a biggest possible coalition and winning elections like 2022, reelecting Biden or whomever in 2024, which will not be easy. It's, you know, the, the prospect of a hanging concentrates the mind. And I do believe that as we move forward in this, you know, this cycle and the next cycle, that will increasingly come to preoccupy people, that perhaps the path that we've been on is not the vote-maximizing path, the power-maximizing path. And because of that is reducing our ability to actually implement the program we want to implement. Because in the end, you know, Democrats want to implement their program, Republicans want to implement their, they want to, you know, I, I believe politicians aren't completely venal. I believe they have priorities, ideologies, views about what policies would help people in the country. You can't implement those policies unless you get elected, unless you win, unless you have a dominant coalition. And that's why to bring it back to the thing we were talking about earlier, the Democrats can choose in a sense between cultural leftism or political dominance. They can't have both. You know, as we move forward in time, I think the signals coming from the real world political marketplace will move people in our direction, you know, maybe not as fast as we like, but eventually. You said that Democrats are probably going to lose in 2022. They probably will lose at least one House and certainly both. That's my guess. Isn't that almost what's driving the progressive wing to doing things like tanking the infrastructure bill in order to get this thing? They basically, they realize we've got this limited moment of unified government when we have barely have control of both houses of Congress and the White House. And we're going to lose it. And then once that happens, once Republicans take over one house and all of these dreams are done. So we got to get as much done as we possibly can in as short a period of time as we can before we lose power. And it doesn't matter if we lose power. This is the theory behind Obamacare because, yeah, we'll lose seats and careers will be ended, but they'll never reverse it, right? That the government is a one-way ratchet. And so if we can just get these, like this idea, that we'll, the way we'll solve this problem for the $3.5 billion is we'll just fund the programs for five years instead of 10. And then once you create the programs and create the entitlement, the entitlement, then people will will want it and demand it and it never goes away. So they're willing to, you know, go all out, lose power if necessary in order to get these things done. Is that well, there is a whiff of desperation there to some of these tactics, I guess I'd say. I think that's fair. I think it's interesting to interrogate why that would be and you know why that would be in light of their own self-conception about their political role in America and their political appeal to voters. I mean, if you really believe that your views and the policies that you advocate and the path that you recommend for America is the truly popular path that can capture the imagination and the support of the majority of the American people, why are you being so cavalier about what's going to happen in the next election, the election after that? You need more than one opportunity to transform this country. If this country is truly as unequal and as benighted and as, as many problems you say it is in the political economy of the United States sees so many fixes, you're not going to fix that in one bill in one Congress. It's absolutely ludicrous. And so if they had faith in their own vision and the appeal of that vision to the American people, it seems to me they would be playing more of a long game. Yeah. We're and not going to get everything done right now. We have to be thinking about how what we can do now that is going to help us build for the future to more elections uh, and more opportunity to do good. And when you talked about a long game, Rui, the question, Mark, you asked about whether our ideas will have purchase, do they have legs? It's challenged from the left, as we've been discussing here. I would also add it's challenged from the right and that it takes two to tango in this country. What I'm worried about, the ideals that we put out, 
it's not for Democrats, it's for liberals, small L liberals. And I worry when I look at the Republican Party seeking to overturn elections still, almost a year and a half after, some elements of it, and the shadow of Trumpism really worries me. And I know we all have different views on this, but I'm extremely worried about that for our ability for our ideas, not solely within the Democratic Party, but just in our system to survive. Because if we have so many political actors questioning the very institutions of our democracy, questioning the processes that have made this country work, and they're doing it from their own narrow parochial angle, they're not playing a long game. They're playing a very short game that actually is scorched earth on our very republic. And I think it comes sort of as part of the conversation about who we are and whether we can have an inclusive nationalism. And it's really not just a left thing. It's a left-right thing. And we Yeah, it's kind of a dysfunctional dance. That sounds like a good point. note on which to end. We both have to clean up our sides. We do. <laughs> we do. There's a lot of cleaning up to do. I agree. But for everybody who's listening, the Liberal Patriot is really a pleasure. Everybody can find it just by Googling Liberal Patriot Substack and see all of this great work that you two and your two compatriots are doing. So uh, congratulations, or Muzzletov is the neocons. <laughs> like to say. <laughs> Thanks for having us on. It was great. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. That was a great conversation. Let's have them back on and keep this conversation going because I think this is something that's missing in our dialogue in the country today is having a left-right discussion that isn't all about accusations of each other's moral corruption. Right. No, I know. And we did, you know, we talked a lot with them about what's wrong with the left. You know, Mark and I talk about what's wrong with the right an awful lot. And I think there should be more of this, not less. You heard a, a slightly longer conversation from us on this podcast because we wanted to continue having that conversation. So thanks a ton for listening. We'll hyperlink their articles where we've referred to them in the transcript and take care everybody we'll see you next week see you soon let us know what topics you'd like us to cover you can get in touch with the show by emailing us at what the hell at aei.org or you can reach us on twitter i'm at d pletka and i'm at mark teason that's mark with a c please rate and review the podcast if you like the show please subscribe share it comment on apple podcasts or wherever you're listening to this thanks for listening 